Hey, Never Sleepers. Welcome to another episode of RNS on the Never Sleeps Network. I'm your host, Alex Ross. I'm still stunned that I got to hang out with Mark Little and chat with him for almost two hours. Mark has this incredible talent in making anything and everything interesting and exciting to talk about. I'm trying to do it right now. Before I could even get to my questions, Mark and I went off on this dissection of Steven Spielberg movies, 80s and 90s movies that started to really open my eyes to who Mark Little really is. He's a fan. He loves writing and telling stories, and that comes with a certain appreciation of the arts. Mark is this ever-evolving writer, actor, comedian, and he has his peers and his fans excited about what he will come up with next. We discuss what it's like working with Jerry D on Mr. D and their upcoming sixth season, which comes out on October 11th on CBC. We discuss Halifax Picnic Face, uh, a sketch troupe Mark co-created in Halifax with executive producer Kid in the Hall, Mark McKinney. We talk about another Kid in the Hall, Scott Thompson. We learn about Mark's most hated John Hughes movies, What more could you ask for? Mark Little takes us on a trip on this episode of Ross Never Sleeps on the Never Sleeps Network. You got to have the carpeted table. Do you know how many people come in for an interview and just like tap or right. just generally people shake and stuff or you, you have to avoid uh, squeaky chairs? Mm-hmm. Having a home studio is not uh, as, as simple as people would think. Right. You know, the reason why a, a professional studio is professional is dampening of sound. We're very lucky. Again, this is a neighborhood that's generally quiet where we're facing. It's just easy to record. You've heard the quality of some of the other shows. Did you get to listen to any of the other comics that I interviewed? Not yet, no. I'm <laughs> eager to do so when I have a moment. Did you see any of the names, though? That <laughs> Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll just get right into it. I love that I'm, I'm looking into the light, like that you're backlit, like <laughs> some sort of Wizard of Oz God kind of vibe. I, I encourage the Wizard of Oz <laughs> God vibe. That's, that's exactly what I'm going for. Those are kind of two, two sides of a coin. Is that one of your favorite movies? Do you have like a classic appeal for like 70? I feel like that's like a live action cartoon in a lot of ways. Totally. Yeah. Your Segway game is uh, on point right now. I love it. Yeah. I've, I think about that movie a lot. I don't think it's one of my favorites. I love the um, sort of sequel to it that came out in the uh, late 80s. Absolutely. Return where Toto's to a chicken. Yeah. Where Toto gets replaced by Belina the hen. <laughs> and the whole movie's a parable about... Um, well, at least on the surface, about uh, electroshock therapy. You remember that part? I can't remember the actress's name. She's the girl from The Craft. Feruza Balk, yeah. Wow, you know too much about this. I've watched that movie a lot of times. It's a truly great movie. It's the guy who edited Apocalypse Now, the only movie he ever directed. Are you for real? Yeah, he's like one of the most famous editors of all time, Walter Murch, and he's just got this like beautiful, dark sensibility. And that movie is so good, so genuinely good. With the exception of Belina, the wisecracking chicken, who is a nightmare. But it, she adds a dimension, you know. It came at an interesting time because we were all familiar with The Wiz, you know, like mm-hmm. 
you've already kind of done Wizard of Oz in a total flipped it on its side approach. And then a sequel, you know, for those who don't know the movie, literally Dorothy wakes up in a mental asylum on like a lobotomy table. Yeah. Because she, or she gets sent there. She gets sent there. Yeah. Because she won't stop talking about this place that doesn't exist. And it's the dawn of electricity and her aunt and uncle are reading this newspaper that's like 1900. Electricity, not only can it light your house, it can do all these new wonderful medical things. And so they're like, this is going to break the bank for us, but is it worth us putting ourselves in debt again? And we need to rebuild the house because the tornado killed it. Like all of these social problems are are being thrown at them. And then uh, they decide to bring Dorothy in to get electrocuted. Incredible. I know. <laughs> when I'm watching that as a kid, because I'm a child when mm-hmm. I'm seeing this movie, I think my cousins were at this phase where they wanted to try to like freak me out as much as possible. So like that evening we watched Chucky, like Child's Play, right. into that movie. <laughs> so I'm already like, what's going to happen next? That's an interesting pairing. Yeah. <laughs> Because it wasn't trying to be a horror movie, but right. it, it, it's remembered that way. You know, a lot of kids have the images of the wheelers, the squeaking of, you remember those wheelers who had uh, wheels instead of hands and feet? And they went along on all fours and they kind of looked like, uh, well, they looked like they were right out of the whiz, you know, they looked like spray painted soldiers, like flying monkeys without wings, I guess. Uh, thank you. I was waiting for you to get there. <laughs> I was like, they're the flying monkeys. Oh shit. They're the flying monkeys. But, uh, just so, so horrifying, you know? And I feel like a lot of people in their early thirties now have like a sense memory of the squeaking of the wheels. Definitely a movie that if you see it once, you forever remember it. Oh yeah, totally. Such stunning images. It's like halfway through. It's not even at the end of the movie that they get to the queen that steals people's heads and keeps them in a hallway. And the heads can all speak and think and they just scream and wail. And she replaces her own. Depending on her mood. Yeah. It's so crazy. And that's like halfway through the movie. And then you got to still go check out (laughs) the god in the mountain. Can we just scrap this podcast and all the questions I was going to ask you? We can just dissect the sequel to (laughs) Wizard of Oz. Where do you get the right to call it? Wizard of Oz 2. Well, Return to Oz, it was based on the book, you know, and the like the books written in 1900 or like the first decade of the early 20th century. It's like, that's what Frank L. Baum was telling. That's closer to the story he was telling. It had that kind of horror element. And then uh, when Hollywood did it in whatever year that was, like mid 30s, late 30s. Not only did they want to make it a musical, but they were like, there's a war on. We got to cheer some people up. There's a war on. You know what I mean? And so in a way, Return to Oz, I think, was a bit of a return to the original idea. Where does that movie stand in other like eight late 80s movies? Because I feel like you're influenced by a lot of late 80s fare. Totally. I think so many people are. Well, it's an interesting one. You know, it's like a nice counterpoint to what Steven Spielberg was doing with all those Amblin movies, which are like now just being churned into like nostalgia sausage <laughs> in a way that I hate. Nostalgia sausage. <laughs> but like at that time, like Steven Spielberg was just such a master of like family Comedy, and and I mean like comedy involving families, like the first 20 minutes of E.T., the first 20 minutes of Goonies, the first 20 minutes of Poltergeist. It's just families being so interesting and charming with each other and not in the way that we think we remember Steven Spielberg. Yeah, we think we that Spielberg... We've kind of like, I think, painted those with the same brushes like Schindler's List. Like, it's weird to think that Schindler's List is like a less deep, more shallow movie than poltergeist but it kind of is because by that point he'd become so sentimental that all of his characters 
you know, not, no, I mean, Ray Fine's character in that one is so crazy, but like, just like his nice characters, like basic relationships were starting to become a bit like archetypes, you know, I think War of the Worlds, I never even saw it, but I heard it's kind of just like, I'm a father, father, save us, you know, whereas back then there was so much nuance, so much nuance. So were you an 80s kid that just like glued in front of the VHS player? I watched a lot of movies, but I actually came, I had to come back to them to realize how much I liked them. Wow. But I think definitely, yeah, there's a whole generation of people. I mean, some people my age took different things, but like there's a lot of people like me who took a sense of wonder that Spielberg brought out that like, I think people who were adults in the 80s were like cynical about, but for us, we were just like, whoa, like adventure, adventure and like charm and everything, like such big fun ideas. Did you throw Goonies back in and like still enjoy it? Like, are these movies as classic as when you first watched yeah, them? Yeah, Goonies is still so good. You know, not all of those movies hold up, but almost all of the early Spielberg movies are still terrific. <laughs> and Jurassic Park's like one of my favorite movies. And that's not even early Spielberg. Did you see the new one? Yeah. Do you have to like see the new one? Do you like, are you so ingrained with the original Jurassic Park that you're like, oh, well, Jurassic World comes out. This is a no brainer. No, definitely not. I didn't like, I mean, I didn't see any of the ones after Lost World, even at the time, because I was like, well, I don't think this is the same movie anymore. <laughs> so <in laughs> How this do we one, use all these dinosaurs? <laughs> we have all these uh, abundance of overused, underused dinosaurs. What do we do with all of them? But this one, it was like, no, I think someone had told me that it was good. And I got to stop listening to anyone because I don't know what people want from movies, but I don't think... I think the majority of people want something different than I want. And I understand if I was a kid today, like just the spectacle alone would probably blow my mind, you know, but exactly what I loved about the Spielberg version was like, when I think about it, in addition to like all of the amazing, like special effects and the crazy, like intense scenes and how funny Jeff Goldblum is, but that's not nothing. Like I think about Sam Neill, <laughs> I think about the central relationship between Sam Neill and Laura Dern and how like wonderful it is you know it's beautiful and it's so nuanced like they never they're never too showy with their emotions you just get this quiet sense that they've been together for a long time she wants kids he doesn't and she's not going to push it and then over the course of the movie you're just going to watch him slowly change what he thinks about the idea of having kids and that's all it is and it's just very quietly done and the only moment you get to see how he feels about her really is when Jeff Goldwyn's talking about how he wants to hit on her oh, and then he's like he just kind of gets gruff about it but he doesn't go like Chris Pratt puffing his chest out like stay away from my girl you know it's just like he sort of gives a look and Jeff Goldwyn's like oh are you two and he goes yeah and he doesn't even say the word you know it doesn't say the word because they knew how he just like Spielberg was like a master of just I mean I know it's nuance in the service of like a popcorn movie but it's nuance all the same um, whereas this one I love that <laughs> they wanted to do the same movie but they just transported it so what had been a movie about a man changing his feelings about children through a dinosaur park became a woman having to discover how to be a better aunt you know what I mean? <laughs> That's the plot of the new movie is she's not a good enough aunt to her nephews. And do you remember that? Mo it's so absurd. The moment at the beginning when the two little kids show up at a dinosaur park for the first time in their lives. And then the aunt's assistant is like, we're going to go see the park together. And then they turn to their aunt and they're like, are you going to come with us? And she's like, no, I'm busy. And they're like, <laughs> shit what's what's even the point of seeing these dinosaurs and we can't go with our aunt judy or whatever oh, like who has ever had that relationship with their mom's sister 
<laughs> was ever like, oh, forget dinosaurs. High expectations for those kids. Maybe they were watching all these 90s movies. <laughs> yeah. They were seeing what a perfect family could be. Right. But I just think, like, that's such a, in, in a single instance, like, it's just absurd. Like, I can laugh at that. Um, and if the rest of the movie had been good, I wouldn't have cared. But, like, as a larger metaphor, it's like, yeah, you're trying to copy what made 80s and 90s movies great. And you've are like doing it like idiots, like monkeys, like aliens who don't even understand how human emotion works. Like you can't just take an emotion and transport it onto a completely different kind of like family relationship and hope the audience won't notice. Who do you get recommendations from that you can trust? I mean, to go to the movies today, to watch television, I feel like we're so overwhelmed that if something doesn't instantly spark with us on our own volition. Yeah. Can you trust your friends, your family anymore to be like, oh, you got to start this new show, Mark. You got to go to the movies. You got to go spend that $25 and see this. Is it easy? Because you said yourself, you know, that Jurassic World was even, you know, you don't even remember who recommended it to you. Yeah, I don't know. I just try and go by like number of recommendations at this point. There's certain people that I definitely trust. Like I trust those people who have a weird taste where it's like they like things for specific reasons and they have a very clear reason of what they want out of something. Then it's like, even if I'm not going to enjoy it, I get to try and figure out what they saw in it. But I mean, you know, sometimes it backfires and sometimes it doesn't. Like, I had no interest in seeing 21 Jump Street when it came out because it seemed like everything I didn't want from a movie. And then I had about a dozen people tell me that it was actually really funny. So I went to see it and it was amazing. It's like so funny. So I don't know. For the time. I mean, there's nothing since, you know, maybe if you're a Seth Rogen fan with all the knocked up kind of lineage that they got, that they've built, there's not really a... You know, a classic, you know, there's no like Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder anymore. Yeah. You know, like who can we see these young-ish actors kind of doing one-liners and playing off each other that are different? And I guess Jonah Hill and what's his name? Channing uh, Tatum. Channing yeah. Tatum. I think, yeah, you're right. Jonah Hill's the only surefire guy for me in movies. I, it doesn't mean I'm going to go, like, I didn't see the, the Babysitter, you know? Oh, you know what? I like that one. Is it good? Wait, is that the new one? No. No, that's an old, old one on it's Netflix. Old-ish. It's when he suddenly lost weight and then he put it right back. I really like that movie. It's a good movie? I really like that movie. All right. Unexpectedly. <laughs> uh, you know, Sam Rockwell's in it at, at one point, too. He's a funny guy. Yeah. I mean, he's a hit and miss guy in my opinion, but... That movie, it was like The Nanny or something, The Sitter or something. That, the called. Sitter, yeah, the sitter. Yeah, yeah. No, The Nanny's with Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah. Another Mr. Nanny. <laughs> Mr. Nanny to you. <laughs> um, no, but he's he's so funny, but you're right. It's not the same as like, I feel like we're probably going through another change period, right? Because we've had Apatow, Seth Rogen stuff for so long. Who's next? Yeah, so we're just waiting to find out who's next. Maybe you're next, Mark. And for Canada, we need... I'm almost certainly not next. <laughs> <laughs> not with that attitude. No way, no. But you're working so hard. I mean, I think what the difference between you and a lot of people in this industry is you have your hands in so many honeypots. You do. I'm, I'm going to throw like compliments at you, it. whether you think it's <laughs> it's busy or not, if it comes naturally to you, great. But when I think about you, I don't think you realize how you come off, you know, as a busy guy, but you are so busy. Yeah, that's interesting. I do have my hands in a lot of honeypots. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I guess I try and stay busy just because I'm worried that I don't know. When I was doing uh, improv in uh, high school uh, or like just after high school, there's like these guys in Vancouver who were just so definitely funnier than me, the funniest people I'd ever seen and still the funniest improvisers I, I know. And so it was just like very clear very early that like I wasn't going to, you know, talent my way into being on their level. 
So I think that's how a lot of people come into just being really hard workers is you kind of see that you can't like coast your way into what other people are good at. So you just try and like work at it. I think that's probably what it is. I'll tell you, you know, it's the, I, I, I've heard this said and I agree with it is literally almost literally the only thing you can control in an artistic career, which is so based on luck and where you are and who, you know, and how charming you are in like social situations that you can like schmooze the right people. Those things are kind of God given to a certain extent, but how hard you work is like, definitely under your control well how i see it is you are on both sides of the coin you like to act you like to do writing for stand-up comic your own acts Mm -hmm. but you also write for sketch you know you kind of take kind of the reins on both sides sometimes you'll do stuff like your authentic stuff with uh space riders and um dad drives Mm -hmm. like you're doing both sides of the coin like you're clearly acting in it but i can also feel that it's your comedy coming out that's the control you have i mean i think to become a good writer you have to be on the other you have to see what it's like to be the actor to have your words spoken in front of a camera Mm. or to be a good actor you have to write and you have to realize oh that joke doesn't work or what i thought may have been funny in a writing room doesn't translate well on the camera. Right. Yeah. I, I, th- I think it certainly helps. I think there's exceptions, you know, there's probably pure actors and pure writers that can just knock it out of the park. I don't know how much acting Dan Harmon has done. <laughs> right. But I, at the same point, your point is right. It's like, it's, wor- it's a worthwhile experience to try both sides of it as much as possible just to constantly at the very least, maintain a humility about your own work. <laughs> the number of times that I've like acted stuff that I've written and I've been like, oh, shit, that wasn't that funny. Or that I've, whatever the flip side of that is. Well, I think it's a Canadian thing, especially in our industry. It's tough making one paycheck. So any opportunity you can to control two paychecks or more, mm-hmm. you know, you have to, as anybody in this industry will tell you, the more hats you wear, the more valuable you are. Totally. So if you can work on a production and get a writer's check and get an actor's check and get a producer's check, I mean, I think that's how you make a living. You got to hustle. You know, how else are you going to see your projects come to light if you're not, I mean, obviously you can't spread yourself too thin, Mm -hmm. but how do you approach these projects? Like, how do you, you know, you're pitching, you're constantly in front of people who are looking at you as not just an actor, but a writer, but, you know, uh, someone who's going to sit in a writer's room, a producer in a sense, you're a court, you're a lot of things. Maybe you don't think of it like this. I see it that way. No, I think of it that way as much as I can. Um, I think where it just comes from is a... You know, I got into all of that stuff because I was in Halifax uh, doing, and all I knew was improv when I moved to Halifax. I started an improv duo. And then because the scene for every form of comedy was so small, it was very inviting. Like there was a stand-up comedian who came, Peter White, who came to judge an improv competition and then invited us to start doing stand-up because there was not enough stand-ups and anyone with a sense of humor was of value to the scene. And then that mushroomed into like, well, if we should try and do that, maybe we should try writing. It was just this idea that like, you make your own world. But then in addition to that, we started making my sketch group picnic face started making sketches online. And that led to a bunch of opportunities, uh, including a TV show. But then once that ended, it was like we had agents and it kind of felt like what's next. And I think that's such a classic place is you have created the thing that made your name. And now you uh, are a part of the system and you wait for someone else 
to usher you onto the next thing. You kind of think the responsibility for making stuff is out of your hands now. And then like so many people before me, I just experienced like I went to like a year's worth of auditions and none of them stuck. And uh, I realized that uh, the only stuff I was really comfortable acting in was my own stuff. And at the very least, that was like the best outlet for showing people what I could do. And it was, you know, it also allows you to do exactly what you want to do. So then constantly, it's just been a matter of in addition to trying to play this game the way that agents and producers tell me it has to be played, I've become pretty sure that that's not actually how things are at least going to work for me. So every time I make a tiny web series like Dad Drives, I think to certain people it looks like maybe I'm wasting my time or why I'm not why am I not spending that same amount of time trying to get on like a big network sitcom or whatever. But the answer is I think that uh, not only am I making something that I find f- for me funnier than a lot of uh, what I could do that other people are writing. It's also um, what's going to make people notice me. You know, it's not going to be like some audition tape that hundreds of other people are also doing. It's going to be like this weird little idiosyncratic thing that I made on my own time. You need to have your extracurriculars is what I call them. Mm -hmm. So any good comic, any good artist is going to be doing something above and beyond their art form, especially in today's day and age, social media, You have to have YouTube presence. You just have to have some sort of connection, whether it's Twitter, whether it's, you know, doing stand-up while you're touring, you know, while Jerry D and Mr. D and all that stuff is happening, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like you are in an industry in a country where if you don't stick your head out a little bit further than everybody else, doesn't matter how successful you think you are, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next year? What's going to happen five years from now? Oh, Totally. And I mean, we've like, I remember when Corner Gas ended and I was like, where'd all those guys go? You know, and Brent Butt did another season of a show, uh, his wife's show, and then sort of just went and did uh, writing. But then all of the actors kind of I, I, I don't remember seeing them in other stuff after that. And that's the most <laughs> famous, like what is the most successful sitcom in the history of Canadian television? So I think being on a Canadian show, you have no illusions that as soon as this one's canceled, someone's going to be like, Ooh, I got to get the science teacher. Oh, I got to poach him for my new sitcom. No, it's like, you're back to, you're back to square one at the, at best people recognize you more than they did uh, before. But that's because of Netflix. That's because I think you're more readily available to the viewership, mm-hmm. whereas, yeah, maybe Corner Gas, you know, it was on TV and it has syndication, but unless you're a fan and kind of started from the beginning, it's just kind of a show you'll pass. True. But I guess all I'm trying to say is like, uh, that's another benefit to me of just like constantly trying to be making your own stuff is because you can assume that these network, these like, you know, a CBC show is doing work for you, but it's kind of not like people really notice you for the first season or so. And they're like, Oh, someone new in the game. And then you just become kind of part of the atmosphere. You know, you're part of the air, but you can constantly be reminding people of your presence by making like little things like every year or whatever. Picnic face. First of all, is massive in Halifax, is massive in the East Coast. Yeah, out East, it's very... I know, like we joke, it's still a network. I just had Kyle Hickey on the show. Wonderful man. Hi, hi, Kyle. Hi, Kyle. (laughs) I hope you're listening. And he mentioned, you know, he, he talks about how Picnic Face opened the doors for comedians like Kyle 
and Halifax to understand that, you know, there's a breeding ground out there. Right. How does that make you feel that, you know, like, I mean, it's Picnic Face. If you still go on YouTube, there's hundreds of thousands of hits. There's still, I love Megalord, first of all. <laughs> I like, I just like. Of all the ones to mention. Oh, yeah. It's just, <laughs> that one played with me so well. But again, you have this, you know, high praise. You know, I don't care what you want to compare Halifax to. Halifax is its own entity. It's its own powerful market. And mm. it's it's very rare for things to come and have a big impact on kind of like central or east coast cities like Ontario, Toronto, you know. How do you feel? Like, I mean, Picnic Face to me is like the Sloan, like the Joel Plaskett <laughs> of like, you know, comedy, of Canadian comedy. Ah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that east coast connection. I mean, it's true that in that in the early '90s, there was that sense that Halifax was nothing, and then Sloan and Joel Plaskett just kind of blew up and made it a thing for a little while. And then it's also true that that didn't necessarily last. You know, there's still really good bands in Halifax, but they all came to Toronto. A lot know? of them came to Toronto, and, like you. Yeah, and now Halifax bands are just kind of trying to start that new thing up again. But yeah, I don't know. I guess what did we try and do in Halifax? It was true that. And, and we're not solely responsible for this. Like Peter White um, was like a comedian who real as a stand up really opened the door for a lot of young stand ups out there. And Paul Ash was uh, another comedian who would put on shows that would just give opportunities to young comedians and very, very old comedians as well. Like <laughs> trying their first couple sets. Oh, boy, I met a lot of charming old timers. It's nice to hear Kyle say that. Certainly we created this sense that you could have a big audience in Halifax and that they would really like you and there wasn't, and, and you wouldn't necessarily, I think like our, just our number one goal when we were out there, it possibly is because four of us were from elsewhere, but we also had comedic tastes that were in no way maritime based. Um, except that some of us had watched 22 minutes as kids, but most of us were into like kids in the hall and like Dave Chappelle or whatever, Monty Python. And so we just wanted to do, comedy in Nova Scotia on the in the Maritimes that wasn't regional you know we had seen like comedians who were like promoted as from Halifax or from Newfoundland or from Cape Breton and uh to our knowledge at the time almost everyone that we had seen had this like leaning into the accent and talking about what you can find just off the coast you know and it was like this 22 minutes hangover it's like rick mercer and those guys came by that honestly that's who they were that they were like newfies to the core but it had just painted the entire region with this brush and then you saw other comedians coming up and like kind of playing that game we were like that's i'm not sure that's the game we should be playing anymore <laughs> like that's it's so uh safe and uh and so like canadian feeling I guess we wanted to not feel Canadian in that sort of a narrow sense. And maybe to certain younger comedians, that was a bit refreshing to see comedy that just felt like other comedy out in the world that was trying to be new, as opposed to feeling like trying to be the next stage of maritime comedy, whatever that meant. When you watch the YouTube page now, it doesn't necessarily come off as like a maritime's comedy. So I think that's a compliment in a lot of ways that it kind of just blends with, you know, Canadiana. Yeah. And that, but then the, the irony is that is that we had that one video all about Halifax, which served as an unofficial tourist video somehow. It was just one of those bonkers, stupid uh, clip art and yelling <laughs> videos that we made. And that's the video that traveled almost the, mo uh, almost the most. And I had friends who would travel the world and run into and mention that they were from Halifax and people would be like, oh, like the video. Wow. 
And they knew Halifax because of this series of absurd jokes over the course of like a minute and 45 seconds. That was what Halifax meant in their brain. It was a word that had stuck for them. We were accidentally promoting Halifax through no intent of our own. Are you the absurdist influence for of Picnic Face? Oh, I think we, I think most of us had an absurdist background. I pushed it hard. <laughs> <laughs> love that. But, you know, I was always like, I love Dave Chappelle's approach to absurdity, you know? he That's still my favorite sketch show of all time. And I, because I loved that it was like, he would take an absurd premise and just ground it by being himself so charismatic and like breaking the fourth wall a hundred times, like letting the audience know that this was all in fun. Andy was more like hardcore kids in the hall, Monty Python, like let's create a beautiful little world that's very strange. Um, you know, and Cheryl was like this dark <laughs> witch <laughs> who would write all of our craziest stuff, like the one about bulimia where it's the girl with bulimia pukes up a tiny man that ends up dating her mom. <laughs> <laughs> but uh we all love, we all wanted to be strange and I've talked to Scott Thompson about this since because we were at a bar recently and he was like, you white boys today are running scared. You're running scared. You're afraid to say how you feel on stage. And I was like, first of all, Scott, I think you're right (laughs) to a certain extent. But also it was your group. It was kids in the hall that sort of taught us that doing topical things was beneath us. Like to do to comment on politics, to comment on celebrity was boring and was what exactly like every show on television was doing in order to pander to an audience. Like we truly believed and I still believe that absurdity is like number one. If you can do it, do it, you know, create your own imaginary little world and invite the audience in. I do like satire. You know, I like when it's pointing to something bigger, but usually, you know, I like that. I like that weird stuff. Your Scott Thompson mannerisms are on point. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Kids in the Hall sketch that when, when instantly comes to mind? Or character? I like every businessman that Scott Thompson plays. Like, I paint them all with the same brush. He's so funny. I don't know if I have a favorite specific sketch. They're all so funny. Like, all those guys. I think that's what was interesting to me about Kids in the Hall. It's like when I think of Mr. Show, I think of sketches, you know, I think of the audition or I think of like the Everest guy because they would create these little pearls of wonderful beauty. Uh, I think sketch for sketch, Kids in the Hall was a bit looser, but that's not really what you watched it for. You kind of watched it for like the vibe. It was like it really had a vibe more so than Mr. Show. Like Kids in the Hall was is so Canadian in the sense that it was like. It, it felt like a movement, you know, uh, especially in Canada, especially in Canada. And then like and all the sketches were brilliant. But then especially like the Bruce sketches where you were watching these like insane short films that were like, what the f- like, what the hell is this? Like teen angst and all teen these angst. things. He would punk rock. And like that one where it's the affair where it's just people doing it's a short film, but like two people like talking in like overly serious tones about we mustn't we mustn't and then they do (laughs) and then it cuts back to them going we mustn't we mustn't and it's so strange and i feel like it would have been strange to adults at the time let alone kids it felt like an invitation into like the strangest world what's it like seeing scott thompson perform now he's so vibrant it's insane you know he's (laughs) you know he's the only comedian in canada that makes me feel like worried 
when he's on stage. Like, I don't know if I agree with half of what he says, but my God, I can't believe he's saying it. Stand-up wise, he doesn't have the experience yet of like a Bill Burr so that he can like say horrible things and make you laugh like till you're crying in spite of yourself because Bill Burr's got the craft so down, you know, but he might get there. He's starting from the right place. Like I see a lot of comedians who fancy themselves edgy or whatever, but they're really not. They kind of just using like an edgy approach to say pretty softball things um, or things that not a lot of people would disagree with. And I also don't know that there's merit in just being disagreeable for the sake of it. But like, it's interesting watching Scott Thompson because he's so passionate about what, he, what he's saying and he believes so truly what he's saying. And some of it is so hardcore, you know? And I agree with you. Bill Burr's got this kind of untouchable approach. You know, he kind of says things that are definitely not PC mm-hmm. and he gets away with it because it's his shtick. It's his bit. Mm-hmm. And I understand Scott Thompson is kind of going for this. I'm untouchable approach because i you know he's at a point in his career where he's kind of done it all and he's kind of going back to the beginning and yeah and he's kind of starting a whole new page a whole new chapter a whole new book if you will totally so he's really gotta do what he thinks is gonna really take him to that level because how do you become you know a you know extremely popularized character based actor mm-hmm. and then say guys you know i'm still here at maybe what is he probably fifth late 50s like maybe pushing 60s saying like i got a rest of my life ahead of me yeah you know like just because kids in the hall is syndicated on nickelodeon doesn't mean i'm laughing to the bank i still need to have fulfillment in my life i still need to have a job yeah that's involved in my art form I, that's why i like watching him do his art because you almost see him as he's doing it kind of think of his whole career like it's it's unbelievable if you're just walking into a scott thompson performance now as a stand-up and you don't know who he is Absolutely, he's pushing the envelope. Absolutely, he's going beyond what most comedians will touch. Yeah. Which is good, in my opinion. But I can only imagine what he's going through, his catharsis as a human (laughs) being that's led him to this point. And that's why I find him extremely fascinating. Yeah. And he almost died, right? He had cancer. Right. So, you're right. It's like all of that. It does feel like someone who's like, oh, I've got nothing to lose who cares let's rock and roll right like i mean what are they gonna do like headline would be amazing like iconic like kids in the hall character beaten up by a bunch of protesters like what what's gonna happen to him you know what i mean like he, he wants people to react this way almost i feel like i feel like it's hard for him to get people to be almost disgusted by him oh yeah i mean uh, you're you're absolutely right when he walks out on stage people love him immediately and he right. has to work to turn them against him uh, which, again, I don't know if that's I don't think he's going out to say, hate me. You know, he's like, agree with me. I want I want to convince you. But he is like that all the time. I, we had a conversation and <laughs> the line I remember most was him telling me, Mark, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I was like, I don't know. Maybe I love that you're telling me that. But yeah, that's watching him is great, you know. I don't want to do that kind of comedy, but I love that he's doing it. Your stand-up is extremely well-written, and you have these amazing bits, and I want to talk about your stand-up, how you have this ability to kind of, and on social media, kind of take a bit too far, but it, like in a good oh, way. And like Sometimes. <laughs> well, I feel like half the battle is being able to keep it up, whether you think you're getting the reactions you want, 
or not. Right. You know, when did stand-up happen? I mean, you were actually born in British Columbia, mm-hmm. moved to Halifax for school. Yep. Started doing comedy out there. Uh, I had done improv before, but started doing everything else out there. Okay. And then eventually made your way to Toronto. Mm-hmm. Fairly recent. I mean, like, you're a young guy. Like, this this kind of all happened in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. 15 maybe even at this point. Improv started in high school and everything else started at, like, age 23. And I'm 33 now. Okay. Yeah. That's a realistic progression in the comedy world. You know, you, you find out what you're good at. You kind of master that skill in Halifax. Now you're bringing it to the comedy boom that's happening in the major cities in Canada. Mm. You know, did you see yourself as a stand-up? You know, you started doing all this improv, you're writing, you're doing sketches. There you're like, oh, the next step for me is, is stand-up. No, I mean, no. <laughs> I don't, I think I had, um, you know, a lot of stand-ups think improvisers are <laughs> dumb. <laughs> Little airy fairy weirdos. And a lot of improvisers think that stand-ups are, um, you know, bullies or whatever. And uh, I think I was living inside those prejudices for a little bit, literally until an improviser introduced me. You know, I liked Seinfeld as a kid and I I liked Chappelle for a long time, but I thought of them as exceptions. And I remember being at a party and and another improviser just started reciting Mitch Hedberg jokes. And I, I was just like sitting on the floor of a kitchen weeping from laughter for about an hour and another guy reciting these jokes, which granted Mitch Hedberg is one of those guys that if you can do a bit of a, you know, McConaughey impression, you can <laughs> make those jokes sing. But uh, I think at that point I was like, oh, okay. So there's comedians out there that I've never heard of that haven't broken through the stand-up world, but that within the stand-up world are so good that they're loved. So then I started getting more, uh, you know, listening to more and more stuff, getting into like um, maybe the softer comedians who I still sort of caught into, like Mike Birbiglia or whoever, like the the less sort of edgy comedians. But then, uh, yeah, it was when I was in Halifax and Peter White came out to judge this improv event and then just extended an invitation to all of us involved to see if we wanted to join the Halifax stand-up scene. Because at that time it was like Paul Ash, it was before Yuck Yucks had arrived and um, Paul Ash was running this weekly show at this underground bar. It was like just a weekly open mic. That was all the stand-up that existed in Halifax, period. One night a week. And it was like a real group of misfits. You know, you had a couple of people like Peter and uh, Andrew Albert who were like, they had a bit of experience, some more than others, and they were kind of trying to work on their crap, but they were still pretty new. And then you had some like, just exactly the kind of people that an open mic would attract, like um, stranger people who would go up on stage and sometimes the audience would be like, what the hell is happening? (laughs) And they'd be bonkers, you know? So it was, I went to see one of the shows on Peter's invitation and immediately it was like, oh, the pressure's off. The pressure, there's no pressure. I think it must be the opposite of trying to start comedy in New York or LA or Toronto or Chicago, where the first thing you see when you go to a show is maybe you know, ultimate pros, people that you idolize and you're going to be seeing them around all the time and it's easy to feel shitty next to them. But here it was just like, oh, if I can get up there and improvise a set, as long as I'm kind of charming and in the moment of myself, it's going to be a breath of fresh air compared to like some of the stranger, darker (laughs) elements on this show. And the audience is going to come regardless, like the proof is here. So that was it. It was like having that uh, pressure taken off made it fun. And then and then it became like we had these uh, 
weekly improv shows that became weekly improv and sketch shows. But that was just one night a week. And then if you wanted to do comedy more than that, you kind of had to just do whatever was out there. So stand-up was just an excuse to do more comedy. And, uh, and my only rule when I started out was just to try and do different stuff every week so that I wasn't boring the same 10 people who would come to the show every week because there was no crowds beyond the like very repeat crowd. Is that how you started kind of basing a lot of your jokes around audience participation? No, I don't know where that came from. I think that came from, uh, it took me a long time to learn how to write a punchline. I wasn't really sure what a punchline was. It sounds so obvious, and I think a lot of people naturally come to it. But I think a lot of new stand-ups have this problem, too, especially if you're coming out of, like, improv or sketch or something else, where it's just, like, the idea of a setup and a punchline that works is kind of baffling. And a lot, I've talked to a lot of comedians who are like, I don't think I'm that kind of comedian. And I just want to be like, just keep trying i remember the first one i ever wrote it blew my mind it was like oh i have a joke that consistently gets laughs because it always surprises in the same way and i deliver it the same way and it works it was amazing to me early on all of my sets were like i would say like oh it was a you know you've heard of hollywood moments well i recently had a bollywood moment and then i would act out like a one-man skit for like two and a half minutes where i'm doing all the dances and i'm doing different voices talking to each other and the laughs would kind of come and go, and sometimes they would be in the same place, but then for weeks they would go away entirely. And it was all in, all relying on like whether the audience wanted to travel with me, you know, on that journey. But I guess that's how you write stand-up if all you know is sketch or whatever. If it's the funny is what you're familiar with, keep rolling with that style, and you're different automatically. As I see it, when you go on stage, I'm going to get half stand-up, half sketch, half improv. Yeah. Don't worry about my fractions, but <laughs> you're going to get all of this in one person, which is so hard. Comedians spend their entire career trying to, you know, nail down that one five-minute set and right. then try to do the next one. With you, you're like, you know, I need audience participation. Can I get, you know, ideas from the audience? Jokes that I want to talk about specifically. One joke you did with JFL, I just want to talk about... Um, at uh, the JFL 42 in past years, <clears throat> you do fist bumping. You have this like uncontrollable ability to stop your fist from wanting to fist bump people in the audience. And you just drive that joke home. <laughs> or uh, you, you do theme songs for television shows yeah. where you have kind of your bit. And you, you sometimes the the joke is like a two second bit, or sometimes you drag it out so long that people are like, "Where the fuck is this guy taking us?" And then you don't care anymore. You get to the, you get so lost in the absurdity <laughs> of it all when you finally make the punch on. You're like, "Oh, the, this was just as enjoyable as the entire experience." And I also want to talk about Jort. Yeah, we can talk about it all. The fist bump's an interesting one because none of these things. I mean, so many of them are just. Uh, like you said, half improv, half stand-up, half sketch, just coming to the stage and trying to be entertaining in whatever way possible, trying to do things in a completely new way that's like surprising even to me, that uh, is, doesn't feel like hack or whatever, even like within my own frame of what that means. But then also so many of them are just like, I think every every comedian goes through this where you have like a new joke and it's super fun and then it, it gets a lot of laughs and then it stops getting so many laughs and then it stops getting laughs altogether. And you're like, what the hell happened to that new pearly joke that I loved? <laughs> and so I was I go through these spells where I just do stand up a ton and I was doing just that threesome joke because that's what the fist bump thing comes out of where I'm just like is again, just another classic like a punchline that <laughs> um 
I remember early on, I was doing a tour with Jerry D and he was like, uh, he saw me do a joke and it was the, I think this was the first punchline I had ever written. I was like, like a first jokey joke where I was like, I, uh, used to get bullied in school. Uh, but the problem was that I was homeschooled <laughs> and you know, they'd be like, get my dad would be like, get in that locker nerd or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> Or whatever, and then I would, like, talk about it for a bit longer. And then I remember after a show, Jerry D, who had otherwise liked my set, was like, why do you do that joke? Were you homeschooled? And I said, no. And he said, do let a homeschooled comedian do that joke? Anyone could do that joke. And uh, and I wanted to say, well, that's so easy for you to say because punchlines come so naturally to you. Like, that was a thing that I couldn't believe I'd carved that out of the side of a mountain, you know? Like, a punchline that anyone could do. Like, there was no higher honor to me than I wrote a joke that I could then hand to someone and they could, like, do it on stage. I think that's only because I felt more comfortable with the thing that most people don't feel comfortable with, which is going on stage and making something up out of thin air that uh, is super weird. But anyway, so when I was doing that threesome so it's like another joke and i was doing that threesome joke where i'm like how the hell did it go it was like uh i recently had a threesome but as a straight guy it's not the kind of threesome you like to brag about having like my threesome was with me another guy and then a third guy <laughs> and uh, and here's how common that type of a joke is i was at jfl in montreal and ron white one of the blue collar comedians is like, oh, weird. I've got that same joke. I just wrote it. And I was like, oh, Ron, what? Oh, wow. How are we cutting the same grass? That's right. But I was doing it for a while and I was super pleased with myself. And sometimes it would do well and sometimes it wouldn't. And then one night I was at Yuck Yucks downtown Toronto and... I just like at the end of it, I always used to end it by going, you know what I'm saying, sir? And I would put on my fist and a guy would bump my fist in the front row and everyone would laugh because he looked a bit gay. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and, and one time I did it and uh, I put out my fist and you know what I'm saying, sir? And he wouldn't, this guy wouldn't pound my fist. He wouldn't do it. He was so uncomfortable. He thought that I was trying to make him look foolish. So he wouldn't do it. So I went, hit that fist, hit that fist, please, 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 please hit that fist, you know? And and then he still wouldn't do it. So it started turning into this, like, I started singing because it was so fun how uncomfortable he was and that he really wasn't going to do it. And there was this, like, live tension in the room as everyone was thinking, like, when is he just going to give a token touch to this comedian's (laughs) fist so we can all move on? What's it going to cost him? And it just turned into this, like, medieval jump auntie tune or i was like you must pound it pound the fist here we go and pound the fist and everyone was like clapping and getting into it and then i was able to like dance around and do this like <laughs> robin hood flute thing and then finally he put, he touched it and the crowd like erupted because it was closure you know we had done a little play and then i got off stage and dylan gott was there and uh he was like oh i really like that uh uh, fist joke and I was like fist joke <laughs> and he's like you know with the thing with the fist I was like oh no 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 no. the joke's the threesome thing the fist is just what happened because he wouldn't touch my fist and then Dylan was like oh no I don't think so <laughs> the threesome joke's okay <laughs> I think the fist part's the joke and it was weird that I needed another person outside of me to like tell me what <laughs> what was special about me you know what I mean and then I see you, you know, JFL 42 recently, like within the last few years, where you're opening with that bit. Yeah. 
And still sometimes, like, even sometimes the song part doesn't work, and that's way worse. Oh, no. One thing to not have a punchline work, but to have a two-minute song where the audience goes, okay. (laughs) So, how do you drive that joke? How do you drive, like, can you explain, you know, pick one if you don't want to do either, but I I love talking about your theme song joke, theme song joke, and I love talking about Jort to my friends. All three of those jokes have had the same lifespan where they both, they all start out so fun and the energy's there, and then it gets to a place where they're a bit harder, and I'm trying to manufacture it, and trying to like almost like quote myself, trying to remember the times that it worked so well. Wow! And then all of them end up out of my set because something of the magic is gone, and I can't conjure it. And that's part of the reason why I'm always making up new stuff is because for some reason I can't make those bits keep going. And and it always feels to me like oh this is the bit, and this will last forever, uh, <laughs> forever and ever. It's not going to be like last time. I just need to find exactly what works about this one and remember it word for word, my expression, my delivery, like my physicality, whatever. Treat it like a punchline, like a one-liner. And then inevitably, it's like I have a couple blips and then I get it back and then a couple more blips and then worse and then worse and then worse. And then I have some like terrible shows where it really feels like I'm forcing it and the audience can feel that I'm forcing it. And then I'm like, OK, I'm out. Right. But but that's good. You you know, you know, if it's working, you keep it going. If it's not working, move on to the next one. Oh, yeah. And inevitably, it'll be like I'll do it a year later when I barely remember it. But I'll be like, oh, yeah, I can do that tonight. And then that'll be great. And then I'll try it a second show and it'll be back oh, to being man. shitty. It's just it's all about spark and energy and excitement. I hate that the audience can sniff that out. I want to know how that translates to social media. Because, you know, just I was asking a few of your friends on Twitter for some material. I wanted to ask you some questions from their mouths. Oh, they're a couple of clowns. A couple of clowns, eh? Well, we'll get to that. I, but I talked to Laura Silovitz, you know. I grew up with Laura Silovitz. She's a Thornhill girl. Yeah. You know, you guys are close friends. You guys are big supporters. You know, I, and I just said to her, you know, just thinking I was going to get something a little bit more on the serious side. Like, you know, do you have a question for Mark Little? And all she responded was with a photo of a golden retriever <laughs> being hugged. And it says, who's a good boy? Yeah, no, she won't give you a serious answer to that. <laughs> Can you explain? Because I know the bit. You know, the bit is impressive. When If you know Mark Little's social media pages, the run-on joke is about you and your mother. Can you, can you touch on about that? Oh, my goodness. I don't even know if that's what she was trying to conjure, but maybe it is. She just likes to call me a dog. Okay. <laughs> I think we've got a two-year running joke where she just sends me photos of dogs and tells me that that's me. It's not a joke that necessarily <laughs> works on an outside audience. I thought it was connected it's to really your... Odd. You had this amazing joke this year on yeah. social media about your mother taking over your basically your, your social media pages. Yeah, it was, yeah, started on Mother's Day and then it just sort of spiraled where it was all these posts about how great my mom was and then it became clear that my mom had taken over and and that she was running the show. And then occasionally it would be like, I'm, you know, I'm definitely Mark and I'm happy. <laughs> I'm not in the hospital at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trapped by my mother. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, I think I, my feelings on what social media is uh, change all the time. And sometimes I just want it to be that just like this goofy performance space. Because I think like, you know, there's so many people treating it a different way in more serious ways that why do I need to be a part of that? And then other times I flip and think like oh i don't want to do this at all i want to shut it all down and then other times i'm like i I should be more serious minded and do good where i can well you definitely shouldn't stop it yeah (laughs) i like it when you're i don't know if you're bored with social media but i think you like to stir it up when you get into those bits i mean i don't know yeah i i definitely want to just do comedy the way that i like to do it that's really all it is it's just like an extension then every once in a while you know i just want to write 
usually it's just based on whoever I read last. Like if I read a bunch of tweets from someone who's really good at crafting like one-liners that I'm like, Ooh, I want to do that. I want to learn how to do that better. Or if I read enough like weird stuff, then I think, ah, oh, I got to get weird. I got to, I got to push my weirdness. There was one social media joke from a Toronto comedian that he just kept driving the punchline. And it was probably the summer joke. Do you know who I'm talking about? Is it Pat Thornton's construction joke? Yeah. Well, not even that it's his construction joke. Yeah. You're right there. You have the right comedian. What, which joke was it? Toronto, yeah, too hot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, forever. I will remember that as the summer of 2016. He nailed it. That's yeah. a joke. Same with your mother trapping you. Like, maybe I'm too involved with my social media, as my girlfriend tells me. But, I mean, this is my source of entertainment. I don't go to television anymore. I don't go to, you know, conventional forms of media to get my humor. I don't even go to Twitter anymore. Facebook's this all-encompassing being now where I can just, if there's a comedian I like, local or otherwise, I can just, I can spend an evening going through your tweets and going through your Facebook posts and, like, reading them to my friends. And you get laughs you right. get bits and pat was a perfect example of you know really driving home a, a joke that's simple yeah obvious but the more you do people were like messaging him every morning being like hey pat is it too hot yet <laughs> yeah I think Pat and I have a similar sense of what comedy should be. We like it. We both like to get silly and we like to push things beyond their breaking point. It's fun to do, you know? The long game is very fun. I, I think I learned that from Family Guy of all places. That one clip, I, I mean, I think I was like 17 years old when that clip of Peter in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory one, where Peter just like falls and hits his knee and then goes, for 20 seconds. And, you know, say what you will about Family Guy aping The Simpsons, but The Simpsons, to my knowledge, never quite did stuff like that. No way. That was more of a, maybe they were getting that from more of a sketch comedy world. Or maybe that's just like, you know, an instance of, uh, what's his name's genius? Uh, Seth MacFarlane. Seth MacFarlane. It's different writers, obviously, where the writing rooms are coming from. You can visibly see that. I know you're a big South Park fan, too. It seems like your influences are very 90s cartoons and like yeah you can't i think you can't help that stuff that like wormed its way into your brain when you were a teenager or preteen or whatever probably my favorite cartoon of all time which competes with like early simpsons is uh rick and morty which is out now that just feels like a game changer isn't that Harmon? that is dan Harmon. yeah doing the being the story god and then justin roiland doing both of the voices being like the god of chaos it's such a what a brilliant union it just feels like uh, dan Harmon is like he wants things to be perfectly precise little crystal balls you know they're so the form is so pure and uh in solid and then uh justin roiland just wants to like smash everything in sight like what better union could you have than someone who wants to go nuts and someone who wants to keep everything contained and you're doing a lot of animation. Clearly, you're influenced by new animation. You're pitching. You're working with Blue Ant yeah. Media. You know, you're pitching some stuff for Netflix. Like, what's going on? Like, what's going on in the... In, you said Cupcakes and Dinosaurs is another <laughs> yeah. project. Are these all animation? Yeah, like some kids, some uh, adult. Um, Cupcakes and Dinosaurs. <laughs> kids. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only adult one. Uh, <laughs> Cupcake and Dinosaurs, yeah, it's a kids show that... E1 is making for Netflix and for Teletoon here in Canada. Um, Are you the writer? 
I'm uh, one of the writers and the um, creative consultant. And my friend is like the story editor, which is like the showrunner in the world of animation, more or less. What's it about? Well, you're not going to believe this, but there's this cupcake <laughs> and this dinosaur. <laughs> they go on little adventures. They, uh, they're brothers. They perform general services. And that really just means like odd jobs. And it's just like a classic kids cartoon setup where an odd couple performs odd jobs in an odd city. And uh, the jobs usually spiral out of control and get very silly and weird. And it's perfect for me because... I think there's a lot of parallels between kids' cartoons, especially kids' cartoons today in the wake of, like, uh, Adventure Time, you know, where it feels like there's a certain, you know, embracing of weirdness and, like, artsy weirdness that hasn't always been there. I mean, it has always been there to a certain extent. Like, there was SpongeBob, and every year there's, like, a Rocco's Modern Life or whatever. Like, it goes back. But right now it feels like a real period of strange cool stuff where kids animated shows are feeling feeling more and more like adult shows that just don't have certain content you know but like the whimsy of that to me is very similar to what i want from like sketch comedy for instance but yeah it's a it's a fun show <laughs> are you writing sketches and then you're like animate this this is a sketch using these characters this scenario i would love to see this animated with the extra bit of comedy that animation brings well it's story based it's like 11 minute episodes so i will you go through the whole process of um going back and forth with the story editor pitching ideas and then he'll tell you what he likes about it or doesn't and then you turn that into an outline and then a longer outline and then a script and then a second and a third draft of a script and all the while going back and forth and he's kind of uh filtering the notes from the network uh, most of the notes that i get are like I want all of my episodes to be about, <laughs> to some extent, the darkness in the human soul, you know, which I think like kids can relate to. I, I think I my first memories of jealousy come from when I was like eight years old, probably. And there was a cooler kid on the playground or whatever, uh, or like my first feelings of uh, anger and like wanting to beat the shit out of someone because he was mean to me needlessly injustice, you know, realizing that like parents, when they didn't get the full, they could never get the full story and they could never like meet out appropriate justice. So I think like kids are encountering that stuff very early. So I am constantly trying to write episodes where one of the main two characters feels like justice in a really, uh, or a jealousy in a really uh, keen way and then does something malicious to his brother like the cupcake to the dinosaur <laughs> and then but then you know by the end of it kind of realizes uh that that's it's not good for his brother it's not good for himself you know it's not positive or whatever morals like, i like morals and i like learning but i think in order to have that you just want to push your you got to push you be ready to push your characters to the point where they're making dark bad decisions and uh that's definitely a note that i keep getting which is like let's make these by and large nicer oh wow like let's not have our characters be abjectly mean to each other which is fair enough like i these people know more about what kids want than i do all i can do is like remember what i liked when i was a kid and i would watch like early simpsons which granted was not necessarily a kid's show but i just remember like episodes where Bart sells, or Lisa sells Bart's soul or whatever. Some, I, I can't even remember how that episode shakes out, but like where the characters do like really reprehensible things to each other and then by the end they're a family again and they've sort of learned their lesson. All in 18 minutes All or in 18 uh, you minutes, know what I mean? Yeah. However long they need to pump between commercials. Yeah, like I love Seinfeld's motto of like no hugs, no learning. Sure, I love that. I think that you gotta be really funny to pull that off. Oh yeah. 
and I, you know, so I still love shows where <laughs> everyone comes back together as a family at the end, you know, as long as it's earned. And uh, as long as you've taken your characters to a pretty dark place before you get there. It sounds like it's harder to write for animation than it is for sketch. Sounds like you have a lot of people taking your idea and then telling you, no, that's a great idea, but can you make it this kind of idea instead? I don't, yeah, I mean, in a way I think that's true. But I kind of, like, when we wrote Picnic Face for TV, we had a real open-ended environment. You know, the executives at the Comedy Network, maybe to a fault, let us run with our ideas. There was only one sketch that they told me straight up no. And I couldn't blame them. <laughs> but I do think, like, other sketch environment, like, I did this sketch pilot for NBC with Laura Silovitz and Emma Hunter. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, with a guy now, Alex Moffat, who's now on, he's going to be on SNL, which we're all very excited Amazing. about. Amazing. Yeah, he's he was, like, such a pure performer that when you were there, you're like, yeah, 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 he's great. Like, a beautiful soul, pure performer. But that experience was so much worse than this cartoon experience. Like, that was... Uh, like the first thing that happened was um, they forced the director, like or one of the producers uh, wrote on a whiteboard where we were like pinning our ideas, uh, a word and it was accessibility at the top of the whiteboard. They wanted to make a show. This was verbatim what they said. And this was riding the wave of like Key and Peele and Amy Schumer, like this new sketch wave. Everyone was ready for sketch again, which happens like once every 10 years. And they were like, we want to do sketch prime time on NBC, which I think the last successful primetime sketch show was in living color. It's just like, that's not what Key and Peele and Amy Schumer were proving. They weren't proving that sketch could exist primetime. They were proving that there was an a big enough niche audience to put it at late night on, you know, uh, specialty channels or cable. But they wanted to do that. And they, they said they wanted a sketch show that could compete with the Big Bang Theory, which was like the biggest show of the time. Like, and it's Chuck Lorre. Like it's Chuck Lorre. Like it's a guy who's just made his money appealing to everyone. So they said they wanted something that could appeal to grandparents and grandchildren and everyone in between. And that was a nightmare because everything I write is like, I want to start a sketch from a point where like a guy has a gun to his head and then we see why he doesn't commit suicide, but he keeps trying to, you know, or I want to write like a sketch where it ends with someone wearing the skin of their dog and, uh, and trying to have sex with a girlfriend because they like <laughs> misunderstood something, you know, whatever. Like I want to, I feel like I want to go so dark and so strange or so whimsical and so strange. Um, I feel like those two examples were really bonkers <laughs> and I'm regretting having said them. But, uh, <laughs> In that world, it was just like trying so hard to write something uh, a bit more general, and and it was a uh, it was crazy. But can I tell you? <laughs> I wanted so the sketch that the only sketch that the Comedy Network ever said no to. It was a song called "School Sucks." I'll do the whole. I'm going to do the whole sketch for you, whether you want it or not. Oh, I want it. It was a 30 second sketch. It was just a kid singing like a super cheesy. Um, song he's singing straight to camera like this like preteen boy with like a backpack on or whatever sitting in his desk and he's just like school sucks i don't like my teachers i don't like my classes no no way and then it cuts to him like at his locker like slamming his locker door and like getting a drink of water or whatever like pushing someone and he's like school sucks take back your uh homework take back your pencils go away and then the last shot is him just like <laughs> approaching the school from outside and he just goes i don't like school no more and then as the camera pulls out you see that he's just wearing a trench coat and holding a duffel bag 
and walking up to the front door, which I feel like you saw coming a mile away because of the way that I set it up. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. That ending took me for a turn. <laughs> but anyway, so I was like, I think I like this. And then, so we just threw it into a package of sketches and tried to... Hide it a bit? Hide. Mask it a bit? <laughs> and then the comedy network was like, absolutely not. And we're like, you know what? You're right. Because I don't know who the butt of the joke is in that right. situation. I guess the idea that some people die at a school. Oh, <laughs> Well, your jokes come from a very South Park feeling, you know, that one especially, where you're kind of being offensive for the sake of being offensive. You've even mentioned before in an interview that you're kind of the Matt Stone to Dan Burns, Trey Parker. Do you feel that you're kind of have these like interesting sketch ideas that kind of push the envelope on purpose and then Dan reels you in to like, you know, I'm going to make sure that we're both either side of the coin to to reflect that we're both kind of you know straight and the funny even mm. though you mo- both must be funny i wonder i can't even remember making that comparison because i don't now when i think about what matt stone does in that relationship i can't even be sure that i know <laughs> you know <laughs> feels like that's just the trey parker show but matt does a lot of crazy voices that are so good and he does a lot of crazy drugs you know oh, right right you know right. like i feel like he's the creative how do I experiment? And then Trey kind of like, well, this is the logical approach to these things. Right. I don't know. Maybe in the beginning, that was definitely my relationship with Dan. I like to have like a dozen comedy partners because I feel like the, your working relationship is going to be different with everyone. It's interesting that I would have said that because I'm such a control freak that I've definitely like, I think Trey Parker is more of who I aim to be. But certainly like when we were making Dad Drives... Dan was, he would come up with the entire episodes, you know, he'd be like, I want to try this, this, this. But then in order to do that, he would just sit down with me in a booth and I would do my stupid dad voice and talk about like things that I wanted to see happen, like that would make me laugh if they happened in an episode. I'd be like, what if I accidentally pushed a dog off a balcony? Like, and I was like, I didn't mean to or whatever. And he's like, all right, I'll write that down, I guess. <laughs> what was like making Space Riders with Dan? I mean, if for those who don't know Space Riders, to me, it's like Power Rangers meets Weird Science, the 1985 John oh, Hughes fuck, I hate that movie. fantasy cult. <laughs> it's that movie, uh, if you don't know, it's starring Anthony Michael Hall, Kelly LeBrock. He's, she's the ex-wife of Steven Seagal. Ooh, she's the one right? that did the Pantene commercial that's famous for, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Oh. Ooh, I didn't know that came from You the hate commercial. that movie? I worked so hard on that reference to tie in. You're a fucking idiot. Get out of here. <laughs> I, uh, I only watched it for the first time recently. And well, that's your problem. You fucked up. Yeah, I should have seen it as a kid. I probably would have loved it. You're right. Man, that movie's insane. There's a lot of insane shit in early John Hughes movies mm-hmm. where you just want to be like, I don't even think this was okay at the time, man. Do you remember the like minute long monologue Anthony Michael Hall does in that movie where he's like the jazz man? It's like him sitting in a jazz club surrounded by like old black men. And, uh, and it's like a first instance of his weird science babe girlfriend getting him out of his shell and he's drunk and he's smoking a cigar and just going, let me tell you about the time that old Jack saw sweet parrot tits like whatever and he's doing like a full-blown black blues man accent that lasts for like over a minute 
And maybe that was okay at the time, judging by Billy Crystal's repertoire. But like, it is so uncomfortable now. You just watch all of these old men sitting around a table, like taking it, you know, taking it for the paycheck. Did I ever expect this reference to go this far <laughs> through you, Mark Little? Even when you started saying that you hated that movie? Oh. Thank you. Thank you for all taking us through the magic of Ooh. weird science. That movie is that movie's real uh, strange and a bit broken. But where the hell do we go from here? Well, we were talking about Space Riders. We're talking about Dan Byrne. Yeah. I, I actually bring up Dan Byrne because I, he's another person I reached out to to ask you some questions. Yeah, and he went off the rails. Via Twitter. <laughs> So I'm just going to open up my Twitter right now. And your Twitter, for those who don't know, is at Mark Mark Little. Yeah, there's a lot of Mark Littles out there. I had to be specific. And Dan Byrne is at Dan, B-E-I-R-N-E. Number one for Mark Little. Hey, man, what's your full name? And could you spell that for me? Yeah, nice. You want, you going oh, to answer yeah, this? We're, we're answering these. We're talking about Mark Thomas Little, Esquire. Every, every word uh, spelled the way you'd expect it to be spelled. <laughs> Number Esquire, two. all the letters are silent. <laughs> <laughs> Number two. So I hear you're a comedian. I love to hear a joke. Not quite a question, but he numbered it, so. Hey, I've already done a bunch of my jokes, but okay. uh, what's, uh, what's a good, uh, what's a good ass joke? Um, you know, um, uh, let's try this. Let's try something here. Let's try uh, something here. Find a joke. It's um, a joke. I'm gonna find some sort of a joke. Um, it's gonna be a joke. Um, I can't remember the setup, but the punchline is that they're Polish. <laughs> so, I hope that helps, Dan. <laughs> okay, number three. Uh, this is just for my amusement, so thank you, Daniel Byrne. Um, three, how did you get into comedy? Were you <laughs> the class clown? <laughs> Dan's my worst enemy in these questions. Uh, I was the class, uh, class clown for um, like the IB students at my school, you know? So uh, I remember like the real class clown to like the most of the school was this uh, guy who's a funny guy who was very good at doing like a dinosaur impression. <laughs> so we would just like run around the schoolyard pretending to be a dinosaur. And uh, he was, a, he was a, lot, a lot of fun. But uh, no, I think I was too much of like a dork to be, you know, true class clown. But in the like IB English full of like hyper ambitious driven nerds. I was the one who probably took himself the least seriously, so I could get a little, I could get a couple laughs out of that, you know? What's IB English? It's like, uh, like advanced or whatever, you know, just like, just for really smart kids. Okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> just like for the smartest kids. You seem like you have a deep rooted love affair with dinosaurs. Me? Yeah. Jurassic Park. Cupcake and Dinosaur, you like to run around the schoolyard as a dinosaur. That wasn't me, that was the other guy. Or you appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely appreciate I was an aficionado of his dinosaur <laughs> impression. I was like, mm, just like the Velociraptors in my favorite film. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm dying. I don't know, just dinosaurs. I think they crop, I mean, what What was it about the 80s and 90s, like the 90s? I don't know. Dinosaurs definitely jumped 
I back onto the map when we were kids. Right. And I, I'm not entirely sure why. I mean... Steven Spielberg? Probably because Jurassic Park was so, so, such a good movie. And then it, like, fucking spawned an entire <laughs> basketball franchise to identify itself with them. Uh, yeah. So, that was the research. I don't know. We caught that. But dinosaurs are cool. You know, little boys, little girls love uh, dinosaurs. Nothing wrong Who with that. Who doesn't like a dinosaur? I've got this uh, great dinosaur joke, and I can't remember the setup, but the punchline is that they're Polish. <laughs> It's the only part I can remember. <laughs> oh, you're killing me. Okay. Four, uh, fourth question from Daniel Byrne. Uh-huh. Hey, did you hear that? <laughs> Fifth question. No, seriously. Okay. Did you hear that oh, sound? Dan, what are you up to here, you little, you little bugger? Did you hear that sound? That was fucked. <gasps> Six. Oh, my God. The earth is opening up beneath me. Yeah. Oh, my fucking God. Okay. Number seven. Who are your favorite comedians? Falling into a hole. Swallowed up by a mysterious chasm. Yeah, there he is. Thank uh, you, Daniel Byrne. Thanks, Dan. That was helpful and uh, fun. You know, we love to do bits. <laughs> Just what a pair, you know? What a pair of bit masters. Was that... You want me to that's answer a, that last I, question I, that he fell into the pit asking my he favorite comedians? He fell into a, a chasm. Yeah, that's true. You know, you got to respect a man's last words. I don't... Okay, well, I, you know, as people I've said before, favorite comedians, Dave Chappelle, favorite, he's my favorite stand-up of all time. I, I wish I had an answer that was a bit older than that, but um, the, the only comedian that I, stand-up comedian that I loved as a kid, you know, I loved Eddie, I fucking loved Eddie Murphy, but I mostly, no, actually I did know his stand-up, you know, I watched Delirious and I watched Raw, and I've not returned to Raw, but I've heard it's fucking crazy. <laughs> Just like 80% faggot jokes. So I don't know that I'm dying to dive back into that. But Delirious, I think, probably is just like... I don't know. Eddie Murphy was a force of nature. What a crazy guy. I never got into Carlin. I always... I've never had much of a soft spot for like the preachier comedians, you know? They're usually not saying anything that I... I don't know. I think I might be a bit naive in that way, though. Because sometimes I'll like go on some thing against like bill hicks or whatever and then a friend of mine will be like here's why he's important and i'll be like all right you're right i don't know i guess if i grew up in a strictly religious household especially in the southern states and like bill hicks came along to blow my mind in the early 90s it would probably be you know very moving so i'm just like someone who's raised in a liberal environment where my world was never lacking for like smart people which was i was very lucky you know smart parents or whatever and then smart teachers i don't think i necessarily needed that from my comedy the kind of intelligent comedy that I've always liked is more like gut intelligence. Like when Louis C.K. says something that just like you wouldn't call him smart in the traditional kind of like, a, you know, Ivy League, ivory tower kind of smart sense. Like he's more just like speaking from the soul and saying kind of like uncomfortable things that still feel soulful, for lack of a better word. And I like that kind of stuff. I, I think I like comedy that illuminates um you know, human nature in in that way, as opposed to like um, Carlin's sort of like perfectly poetic lines about what's wrong with the world doesn't doesn't totally connect with me. I feel like, yeah, sorry, that's a bit of a tangent. But yeah, definitely um, my favorite comedians are always a bit on the sillier, more charismatic side of the spectrum. So people like Eddie Murphy, Jerry Seinfeld, Dave Chappelle, Mitch Hedberg, more currently Paul F. Tompkins, uh, Tig Notaro. And then, like, Bill Burr and Louis C.K. are still, like, the fucking monsters that I love. Bill Burr, I think, has even surpassed Louis C.K., like, currently? Currently, for sure, yeah. Bill Burr, I mean, it's interesting, because, you know, my uh, my girlfriend says, like, I'm a feminist, she's a feminist, like, more so than I am, even, like, she's 
<laughs> she's who you would expect I would be dating, you know, probably if you know anything about me. But like um, even her, like we were listening to the Bill Burr album and, and I was worried when I put it on, put it on in the car because I know how it makes me feel. And I know that I don't find him morally reprehensible. I think he's saying some interesting, true things that are just like really, you know, fucking controversial at times and dark. Um, I was worried about how she was going to react to him and she just loved him. You know, we were all like laughing till we were crying and, uh, she made an interesting comment about him, which was like, it felt like, uh, that bit he was doing where it was like a guy can't express his emotions. Cause like, he's worried he's going to pick up a cute pumpkin to carve in a supermarket. And then he always hears his buddy's voice in the back of his head going, what are you, fake? <laughs> you know, that bit. And she was like, she was laughing at it. And she said, you know, it doesn't feel offensive. It feels like an interesting criticism of masculinity from within masculinity. You know, it's, if anything, like a feminist bit. And I'm like, yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. It's like, and I think I prefer that to um, comedians that talk from outside and just criticize. You know, you can do that well too. You can really do that well. So I shouldn't say that. Like, I like anyone who does anything well, but I like the idea that he puts himself inside it and takes this huge risk that he might look like an asshole and says something that is ultimately like, weirdly progressive but progressive from like a an, a different angle you know that you're not used to seeing which makes sense to me why you like dave Chappelle so much because he does that with racism you know or race totally, you totally. know what i mean like yeah. I, I get that's why i like billboard that's why i agree with you and it seems like you're naming these comedians because they all kind of have these observing approach to the liberties we take in this PC world because they can get away with it. So therefore, they're kind of these spokespeople in a sense to be like, hey, if I word it correctly and if I put myself in it, who are you mad at anymore? You know, like, totally. And, and Louis C.K. does that too. But, you know, right now, Bill Burr is killing it. Yeah. Two days a week, he has a live uh, a recorded podcast. He does a Monday and Thursday show every week. That's his thing now. Mm-hmm. And he's just talking about himself, what's going on. And he uses these jokes, his bits in his day-to-day conversations. And it's just so real and funny. And you yeah. can tell he's a humanist. Like, he loves and cares about oh, all you these can tell. people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think the problem, I mean, the only perceived problem is, like, you, you know, the reason that Dave Chappelle quit doing his show was because he was worried that he knew what the real targets of his bits were. But he was worried that he couldn't control who was hearing his bits and how he was and how they were hearing them. So he was worried that he was contributing to race, racial uh, stereotyping, you know, and prejudice. Cause there's just, he just can't control how certain audience members will interpret what you're saying. And you can tell that, yeah, from in certain years, it might sound like Dave Chappelle's, uh, you know, working against progress, you know, in certain years, like not to us, but that that's what he was worried about. Um, that every time he like dropped the N word in a sketch, he was just making it more and more okay for, uh, racists or people who might be leaning in that direction to think in that way. I, that is sometimes what I think about when I think about Bill Burr is like, I'm like, I, I feel totally comfortable with this material. I'm also pretty sure that if I had like a different sensibility, a different sense of what was right and wrong, I might still get what I want out of Bill Burr. And I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I, I guess I feel okay. You can't control that, but you know, it makes me feel anxious. It's better than like, it's like, yeah, but at the same time, it's like, you know, he's doing what he can. He's being real and interesting and you can only, con- only control so much. And through all this acting you're doing and all this writing and producing you're doing, 
you're still doing stand-up. You're still surrounded by Toronto comedians. I mean, are you touring the country? I mean, you mentioned Jerry D. I would love to touch on what it's like working on the show with him. Do you ever, you know, go off one night and be like, hey, let's drop in on a Yuck Yucks together and just blow some minds? <laughs> I wish. No, he's uh, he's too busy. Sometimes he'll do that. Like, he did that over the summer when he was preparing a set for... Um uh, for just for laughs, but you know, he's got like three kids and he's like in charge of every aspect of this show. So he's constantly just like exhausted and working towards something. So he's at a point in his life where he's approaching comedy differently than I am. I think I'm, I'm trying to be like bohemian about it. So I don't want to tour the country because I already, I've done it enough to know how small towns feel about me. And I totally respect people like Louis C.K. and Bill Burr, especially Louis C.K., who started out as an absurdist and then grew into this sort of voice of universal ideas that he's become through being hardened by the road. And I know about that. And I like respect comedians who want to go through that. But then I also look at a lot of road comedians, especially in Canada, where I'm like, that's a hard life. And to commit yourself to that hard life with the hope that it's going to make you a better comedian and trying to keep off the possibility that it'll make you a worse comedian because you'll just start playing only to these like uh, to, to a certain sensibility that's like non-metropolitan. And like my sensibility is metropolitan to the core you know like i have city ideas of what's funny you know absurdism generally is like a big city trait um and the more you get outside of big cities in my experience uh the less um open to that people are they and uh so anyway i i've kind of had i've had just enough experience to know like i was at a crossroads a few years ago where i was like i spent a year only doing stand-up i was like i'm gonna tour i'm gonna tour i'm gonna take my licks and i'm gonna <laughs> I'm going to grow and I'm going to try and become the comedian who can appeal to everyone in Canada. And then it, it was a bruising experience. You know, I went to one club and just ate shit for five straight shows. And then I came back from it and I was like, I don't, I don't know that I, I want that life. I think some of my favorite comedians, some of my favorite comedians are people who would make it work anywhere. Like the ones just mentioned, but some are not. You know, you can't send Paul F. Tompkins, in my mind, you can't send him into the middle of nowhere and he, and have him succeed. He's not going to like a mining town and making people laugh. He's just not. I don't think. I could be wrong. And I think, but I think that's okay. Like, I, I think like there's room for some comedians who are going to appeal to everyone and then other comedians who are just going to like craft their perfect little weirdness and appeal to who they appeal to and just try and do it that way. And I think I would rather do that. I have never done good comedy out of being miserable, you know? Oh, wow. Never. It can drive me. And then maybe six months down the road, I've grown a little bit. And I know that's the ideal. But all of my best comedies come when I'm like super confident and super happy and not taking my career seriously. Just like being a kid in a sandbox. So I made like I just kind of like determined that I was not going to I was going to think of myself as like a hardworking hobbyist. <laughs> and that kind of flies in the face of what they tell you to do as an artist. Absolutely. And most, if not all cases, you got to do what you love. If, once you're in that, you know, effortless feeling of art, then it just flows naturally. Right. Well, yeah. And I think I'm in the privileged position where it's like with these kids cartoons and these, uh, like I'm a writer by trade now, you know, like I do more of that. I, I make more of my annual 
wage now from that than I even do from Mr. D, which is exactly where I wanted to get because I was living terrified that that show would end and then I would just have no income again and I would have to start scrambling and turn stand up or whatever else into a job. But I'm at this point now where I've been writing, trying my best to be a writer for like the last five years and it's gotten to a point where I'm getting enough work that uh, that's my primary job and that's just allowed me to turn sketch, improv and stand up into like beautiful, fun things where I can just like explore creative ideas and not worry about if a show goes bad or whatever and not have to force myself to do shows I don't want to do. And again, yeah, I'm not, I'm probably not going to grow as much as a comedian in certain ways, but in other ways, I think I might get a lot better just from approaching it that way. Just like being as, you know, freewheeling and creative as I can. And it sounds like you're still doing the hustle which is important. You got to, like, again, have as many hands and as many honeypots sure. as possible. Yeah. And this ties into that. I mean, you just did five seasons of Jerry D, Mr. D, Jerry D Show. You're doing season six, which is launching October 11th. So, we're going to launch Holy this shit. show yeah. before that in promotion of your October 11th sixth season. Is there going to be a seventh season? Uh, I don't know. We never know. I think it's been... Ever since the first season, we've never known if we had another one coming up. Well, you play Simon Hunt. The Simon Hunt. Of Xavier Academy. Xavier. Well, they didn't kill you in season six, right? You're you're still alive leaving. Se- oh, we can't. You don't I'll want to never reveal. tell. <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a weekly episodic sitcom, they just kill one of the characters. You never know. You never Some know. Some kid walks up to the school wearing a trench coat with a bag <laughs> over it. Okay, sorry. That would be... That's how they end Jerry D. Crazy story. <laughs> I keep calling it Jerry D. What's it like working with Jerry D? That's why I keep saying his name in, in in the complete form. Like he's a legend. He's a local Canadian. He's from Scarborough. He's he's a Toronto guy, kinda sorta. He's got an interesting story. You know, started doing stand up at thirty. You know that? Because he was a teacher, bro. This is legit. Like, the story of Mr. D yeah. is, is loosely based off him failing at becoming a substitute or a full-time gym teacher. and Totally. And now now he doesn't even get to be that. It's so funny. <laughs> his show is, like, t- even takes what the obvious joke would be and flips it on its head. Yeah, no, I like I like Jerry a lot. He's, um, you know, especially in the Canadian comedy community, you'll find a lot of people who are eager to sling mud at him. I think... Um, some people have had a couple of people have had bad experiences with him. You know, he's he's headstrong and he's stubborn, and I think he's gotten to a place where he is because of that. Like he's a he is a fucking hustler. You know, he's hardworking, and if you get into comedy at age thirty, you feel that clock ticking that much more. You don't have as much time to like play. But I think he's a good person, and I think he's making the show he wants. I admire that he's as involved with the show at every level as he is like i think it would have been easy for him to turn more complacent after six years it's interesting and he and he's like he has a philosophy of like what he wants comedy to be and and part of that was um like brent butt famously talked about wanting to have actors on corner gas instead of comedians and uh, i think there's a lot of value in that but jerry wanted the opposite he wanted a full cast of comedians so that people could constantly be finding new things on in the moment in the scenes um so we got you know people like jonathan torrance who are just like so funny so funny in the moment and uh it's an interesting experience like what's it like walking on the set every day with jonathan and jerry there and you're walking in and you guys are just riffing off camera i just feel like all the co-stars even the kids seems like a very good environment to be working in 
Yeah, it's um, it's funny, you know. It's like it's hard. It's hard to remember that it's not a job. Sometimes you walk on, and it's just like a job. And a lot of people, that sort of excitement of we're holy shit, we're making a show, goes away after the first couple days or the first week of filming. Probably the first couple days, and then it's just like real life where the people who are extroverted and talkative and really sociable and funny continue to be that way. Like the people who you'd meet on the street and they'd be like that are like that on set. And the people who aren't, aren't everyone just sort of falls back into who they are. And I'm, you know, so I'm a bit quieter and I tend to keep to myself. Um, and just like, I'm constantly working on like whatever my next project's going to be. And, uh, but then, then I'll come away from it and be like, shit, I wish I'd been more sociable. You know, I want to take more advantage of like this sort of interesting, fun situation. But then the people like, you know, Jonathan Torrance is like a prince. He's the he's the nicest guy who's just constantly cracking jokes to everyone in the crew. Once a season gets like a food truck or something to come onto the lot and just give people free food all day. Like he's wonderful. And uh and there's a lot of people on the set. I don't even know who if it, it's who you expect, but anyway, it's fun. It depends on who you're with. What do you think the success is from? Like, where do you think it's coming? Like, I mean, six seasons. It's Netflix syndicated. When was the last time since Corner Gas has such a show made such an impact? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why it's... <laughs> sometimes Sometimes people come up to me. Usually it's like um, slightly older people, like teachers, especially teachers. Oh, yeah. Really connect to it. So obviously, like that's, you get that. And sometimes it's people my age. Like I was in uh, Calgary at a music festival and this guy, like a, like a dude who just looked like a, you know, a crust punk wearing like a denim vest with the sleeves ripped off, you know, like a denim jacket with the sleeves ripped off, covered in patches, came up to me and he's like, Mr. D, man. And I was like, you? You like <laughs> oh, Mr. D? That's so good. So every once in a while, I'll meet someone like that and it really blows my mind. I don't really, I don't know. Because it, it feels like there's a lot of different things happening in the show. I'm not sure what people are specifically connecting to. I think by and large, people are connecting to the general premise of Jerry being rude to us, to just saying things that you don't say, you know, in that environment. I think people, I think that's ultimately what, like, that's the hook of the whole show. So that's ultimately like, if you're not connecting to that, you're probably not watching the show. So people like that. And then, and then there's peripheral, like garnish for them to enjoy, like really weird characters, like my character or Jonathan's and then slightly more grounded characters like Naomi Sneakus's gym teacher or Wes uh, Williams, Maestro Fresh Wes's character, who's my favorite character in the entire show. What a great progression for that guy. <laughs> yeah. That character is so funny, man. Cause it's like, I really love it. That's the, th I think what they did with that character is the thing I appreciate most about that show. It's like they took a guy who his entire identity in the first season was being the cool Mr. D that everyone else thought was cool and they didn't think Jerry's character was cool at all. And Jerry's like fighting for that nickname or whatever. And then slowly they just like, they kept Maestro's character as the most positive, like this beacon of optimism, but they slowly just, uh, ruined his life around him. So slowly he lost everything. His, he lost his wife. He lost his home. He had to move into the basement of the school. Then his wife was murdered. Oh my God. Then he started dating the woman. Uh, wait, I don't think I can spoil it. I think that's a season six spoiler, but 
what they did with yes. that kid. Thank you, Mark Little. <laughs> Our audience has been dying for that at the oh, middle yeah. of the season six. Do we have a heavy Mr. D audience? We, I, I, we do this now. podcast. Yes. <laughs> this is the spoiler one. But I I really like I really like that the long game they're playing with that character. It feels like something that Dan Harmon might do, you know? Like just slowly ruin a positive character's life and and see how funny it is when he remains completely positive, refuses to admit that anything's wrong. Will you watch every episode? No, I don't think so, no. I generally don't. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. It's tough, I know, I can only imagine. But if you flip on Netflix right now and you highlight Mr. D, you, you're the primary photo, like you and like Jerry. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty... Like how many people like get to like relax on a late evening and flip through Netflix? I, I, I'm pretty certain that if you own Netflix, you are searching for what you're going to watch more than what you're actually watching. Right. The, the whole surf on that is part of the experience. Anyway, I'm surfing through it, learning a little bit more about Mr. D. Go on to the Mr. D icon and you're there. It's you. I'll take it. You know, I um, <laughs> last night I did a show at Second City and this is so classic for my uh people will introduce me before shows they'll be like you know this guy one of the stars of mr d and then you hear like depending on the audience that like the type of audience you'll hear a number of people go and then and you know just in their heads they're going is jerry d here (laughs) and then they'll go then the host will inevitably say like mark little and then no one knows that name at all and they sort of remember my face and so you hear this collective Followed by, uh, okay, <laughs> not wanting to hurt my feelings. Yeah, but that, that gives you every more reason to win them over and like have a good set. Yeah. Oh, and I love, I love that too. I especially love if people do know me from the show because what I'm going to give them is so dark and weird compared to what they're oh, yeah. familiar with. That's the, love that. That's the best feeling. I feel like that must be a certain like amount of like what Bob Saget gets out of doing his dirty, dirty stuff, you know? We need to get a little dark and weird. I want to I want to end this podcast. I want to talk to you about your creative process. Uh-huh. I know that you are an avid user of mushrooms. <laughs> That's part of your creative process. <laughs> oh, man. I hope my parents don't listen to this. I hope they're listening. Actually, they, they actually asked me to ask this question. I tweeted at them, just like Dan Byrne and Laura Silovitz. And they're like, number one, Mark, what's microdosing like? Does it help your creative process? You know what? I, I read that like Rory Scovel would go out into like the woods and do mushrooms and then come up with bits and like write them down and then take them and try them out. I can't really do it that way because in, like mushrooms for me, I think most people's experience like mushrooms or acid or like any psychedelic is like you get really spiritual, you know, like really spiritual. Well, I guess it's different for everyone. But for me, it like, you know, taps you into nature and it makes you feel the beauty of the universe and all of that stuff. And it, I think it heightens the already like childlike qualities that I have um, and my like my feelings towards like the beauty of the imagination or whatever. And, uh, and so I don't think I could, I could never like, I love cracking jokes when I'm on mushrooms and just like laughing and talking at a mile a minute and just going back and forth and feeling like words are like almost this tangible thing that you can see in front of you, you can play with them with other people. You feel that so great. But I think to stop and write that down would make me feel like I was like doing a disservice to like the beauty of the moment or whatever. <laughs> Do you ever record your ideas instead? No, because that would feel the same, you know, right. I feel like I'm only doing it to 
create material. Mm. Too much of my sober life is like sitting down and trying to write material. So I want to like, but sometimes it's like I remember stuff from that process. Okay. I think ever since I've started micro dosing, which is relatively new for me, um, relatively new in like a global sense. Right. And which for like people who aren't familiar, is just like taking like a little bit, like such a little bit in the morning. And this one doctor who died, who talks about it. I'm just reminding myself of like my one friend from high school who was the guy who had like read up on weed and was ready to like talk back to the adults who told him that it was bad, you know? But this one doctor who's uh <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Fadiman or Fadiman, um, you know, talks about it a lot and uh recommends like one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off. And you just do a little bit and it just like it just gets you a little bit into that frame of mind where everything's a little bit lighter and a little bit um, like more spiritual and a bit whatever else, you know, it heightens the positive. It can also like push you in the other direction if you're prone to that. But did this come from, you know, were you an average uh, pot user? Mm-mm. Did you, how did you make this transition into like enjoying the spiritual side of you? I don't, I don't, I, th- I think through trying mushrooms and then it sort of opened that door, you know? Open that gateway. It was a gateway drug to feeling good. <laughs> uh, I know what I tried to do. I tried to smoke pot in high school a bunch and, um, and I know ne- it never worked on me just because it was like, you know, I'm one of those people who it makes more paranoid instead of less. I would see my friends just like smoking weed and then like giggling and watching, you know, heavy metal or whatever the movie and, uh, and just feeling like a million bucks. Man, I would have given anything to have that experience, but. I had the opposite. It drove me insane and like made me second guess everything that was coming out of my mouth and made me dwell on things that I had said, you know, weeks, years ago. Like, oh, I can't believe I'm such an idiot. What an asshole. And they all know. (laughs) They all know what a false asshole I am. So for years, I just didn't do like drugs at all. Um, And then I first tried mushrooms in high school and was like small and then like tried more later and later and then did it once with Picnic Face and it was like so great. Oh. And then, uh, and we were just like laughing nonstop. And Bill Wood, if you, if you know anything about our group, he's like the little impish man who's like so beautiful, such a beautiful soul. And he like just led us through a park and like lit sparklers in like a spiral. And then like, we we're like, what the hell's going on? And before we had time to process it, he just took us down the street and forced us to like dance on benches and stuff. <laughs> Very good at leading a kind of expedition of the mind. But uh, anyway, blah, blah, blah. More recently, I just started doing it a bit more and a bit more and realizing that in situations where I had a lot of social anxiety, like if I was hanging out with people that I respected and uh, or looked up to or felt threatened by and just my normal uh, reaction to that would be like to clam up and then to go home and then to like resent them and myself for not having like participated. Uh I found that like when I was doing mushrooms, I was totally sociable and like confident and, you know, felt exactly the way they tell you to feel in like kids PSAs, which is like, be yourself and don't worry (laughs) about the consequences. People like you, if you're you. And on top of that, I found that I was like listening really well. And my empathy was just like through the roof so that if someone said something like super cutting or rude to me in the course of conversation, it was very easy for me to like say, oh, that's not about me. Like, it's clearly not about me. They don't know me well enough for that to be about me. They're in a bad mood right now uh, or they perceive me as a threat. So all I have to do is show them that I'm not going to 
take that the wrong way and like be hurt by it or I'm not going to like come back at them the way they might be expecting. I'm just going to like diffuse it and then ask them more questions about themselves and get them to open up. And I consistently had experiences where that worked, where people who had a bit of the, a bit of a chip on their shoulder would suddenly become very like talkative because they're like, oh, you're not going to come at me. Like they were approaching a situation like a wolf who thought I was like a wolf that thought it was a bigger wolf. <laughs> but instead I was like, no, I'm like a pretty small, like maybe like a dog. <laughs> so you could be the wolf if you want, but let's just hang out for a bit. And then they'd be like, oh, good, 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 good. A dog. I'm comfortable with dogs. <laughs> like sometimes, you know how you see like guys interact with women as opposed to how guys interact with guys. You just wish that all guys could interact with guys the way they interact with women, where it's like, there's no sense of competition. There's this like openness because guys look, I think a lot of the time guys look at women and they're like, Oh, someone who's in touch with their emotions. Now I can open up a bit, but then they see other guys and they're like, if I open up, he'll cut my throat and take my family. You know, there's this like weird paranoia about, um, going there with other guys it's like that fist bump joke it is yeah it's that tension because it's not you know i think your first reaction is like oh this guy doesn't want to look gay but i don't really think that's what it is i think it's like this guy thinks i'm clowning him and i am to a certain extent and he doesn't want me he doesn't want to give me that power he doesn't want to be the one who gets humiliated by me and i get that you know i get it to a certain extent, though, that's kind of the relationship between an audience member and a comedian is you got to give up that power a little bit. Uh, and some people are more reluctant to give it up than others. But uh, anyway, so this is such a long way of saying that um, I think a lot of people become stoners because they feel like it maximizes their best self. And that's just literally the only reason that I love mushrooms and like love them in small doses where I can still go about my day to day life. But I'm like, oh, this is. You know, when I think of the kind of person I want to hang out with and then subsequently the kind of person I want to be, that's just just who this guy is. Mark, that's some amazing creative life advice. <laughs> it is. I know it's funny where it's coming from, but we don't talk enough about the process. You know, it's hard to, you know, not be affected by other influences, whether it's people, whether it's substances, whether it's, you know, you have to put yourself in a place where you don't feel the most comfortable or you do feel the most comfortable, depending on how you can alter your state of mind. And that's how you get to places, whether it's a, a joke you're looking for or how to feel, you know, normal in society. You know, I feel we live in a pressured world where psychiatrists are, are you know, diagnosing and, and giving, you know, chemicals to people that not to say that they don't need them or they don't use them to their benefit. I just feel like there's a lot of other options for people who aren't necessarily, you know, I don't say don't go to therapy, but maybe microdose, maybe try something that's natural. I'm not saying, you know, walk out of here and do heroin. I'm saying use what has been available to us for centuries, explore your life, even if you're a nine to five or sitting at a desk, take advantage of the opportunities. And whether it's a drug we're talking about or a natural thing that comes from the earth, where I see you is you have this ability, and like you said, very bohemian, to kind of reach out 
and and understand what you're capable of and, and the things that you aren't capable of, you're still reaching for them until that you become, you know, enthused or you become ingrained in how to do it. Just like a bit that doesn't work. You know, how many times have you gone back to that bit and realized if I do it this way, if I take this and try to conjure the magic again, you know, you have to try. I don't think enough people are realizing that there's so much more opportunity for us in this day and age. It's it's not as easy as it used to be, especially with the amount of information and and basically how we're overwhelmed by everybody else. Some people just have to like limit your interactions sometimes with yourself, your close friends, something that's going to change your state, enjoy yourself a little bit more. It's not easy for someone to be like, okay, I'm home from my job. You know, how do I interact now? Like, what do I do next? What, you know, we all say liquid courage, you know, have a few drinks, go and mingle. I see the same thing, especially today with microdosing, with marijuana use, and we're becoming a little bit more familiar. And I'm asking you these questions because, you know, I look to you as somebody who's using this for the better. Mm. And that's why I'm encouraging you to promote it. (laughs) I just think it's it's a positive thing when it's spun in the positive light that you are spinning it in. Yeah. I mean, I'm reluctant to tell people like go out and microdose every day or whatever, because I'm still trying to figure out how healthy it is, which I think is like everyone's react relationship to every form of medication or whatever, constantly trying to make sure that it's the right thing. I definitely encourage everyone to try mushrooms at least once just to see, just to experience that sort of wonderful, uh, version of yourself. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm constantly just reading and trying to make sure. Cause you know, there's not, not a ton of long-term studies on microdosing. They're just, couldn't be uh to this point because it just first of all it's illegal uh so you can't like get sanctioned studies but you've got people who are trying to figure out what they know or figure out what they can based on like sort of anecdotal evidence um i'm not trying to preach here yeah no 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 no. i mean yeah from everything i've read so far it's the kind of thing where it's like, if you feel like it's pushing you towards paranoia or psychosis or whatever, obviously stop it. Um, and maybe try not to do it every day for a month. Maybe give yourself, give your brain a couple of rest days here and there. Um, but at the same time, so far, <laughs> to me, it's uh, it's been pretty magic. I mean, they've said the same things about pot they said the same things about drinking. And now look at the dispensaries that are opening up all over Canada and U.S. I mean, some of the strictest pot laws in the world. And, you know, I just think that with more positive reinforcement, especially with mind altering and mind opening, I think that's just important for a lot of people. I think a lot of people's, you know, day-to-day lives will become a little bit more interesting if they kind of just get out of the norm once in a while. And I think just checking out your material in general is a trip in itself. Picnic <laughs> face, uh, honestly, from all over Canada, it's hilarious. The cartoons, the animation, the live sketches are great. Uh, the stuff you're doing for Authentic, uh, the upcoming stuff you're doing for Blue Ant Media and all that stuff. I'm looking so forward to seeing what comes out of Mark Little. You can catch Mark on Twitter at Mark Mark Little. What's your name of your website? What's your website? Oh, it's just marklittle.ca, but there's not a lot of updates there. Okay. <laughs> you are sometimes seen at the local comedy clubs in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Anything you're promoting coming up? Any sketch troops? Anything like that? Um, we've got a couple of Get Some shows in November at Bad Dog, which is just like a big group of us sketch comedians from here in Toronto. And then uh, 
And then Space Riders Season 2 will mercifully finally be coming out in the next couple months, I hope. That's with Dan Byrne? That's with Dan Byrne. And October 11th, Season 6 of Mr. D. My goodness. All that stuff on the horizon. I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm literally going <laughs> to name this episode. I don't think people how realize how busy Mark Little is. Like, like you're a busy guy. I think you could cross out... Uh, a lot of that sentence <laughs> and replace it with the word who. <laughs> have a comedian, writer, actor, and all-around busy guy, Mark Little. Yeah, get to know another Canadian comedian. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been a real honor having you here. Talk for almost two hours. Yeah. Well, Thank geez. you. Thank, yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Never sleepers. Sleep tight. Sleep tight.